Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our World Risk Register Threat Monitoring Service. These podcasts are released on a weekly basis, covering timely and relevant topics. In these discussions, we hope to shed light on evolving scenarios and provide actionable predictions and implications. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Hello and welcome to another Civiline podcast. In this session, we're going to be talking about the ongoing Vostok military exercises and what they mean to the wider development of Russian and Chinese relations. With me today, I'm joined by our lead Eurasia analyst, Ed Johnson, and our lead Asia-Pacific analyst, Amy Reynolds. Thank you very much for joining us today. Perhaps we'll start off with you, Ed, to tell us a little bit about the exercises, what's going on, uh, and, and what they mean. Thanks, Pete. Uh, yes, the, the Vostok exercises have uh, caught the headlines recently, uh, being the, the largest uh, exercises held in, in Russia since 1981, when it was obviously, obviously the Soviet Union comprised of over 300,000 uh, troops being involved, uh, 36,000 tanks, uh, over 1,000 aircraft, and over 80 ships. Now, some of those numbers are a little bit soft you know, in, in, in terms of uh, exercises that would be happening annually at this time of year are also being sort of rolled up into it. But it really suggests it's, it's quite a marked sort of statement of intent from the, the Russian military um, to conduct exercises of this scale, uh, principally in the sort of central and far eastern di- military districts. So last year in September, we had the, the Zapad exercises, which were in, in the western military district and the central military district in Belarus. Uh, and yeah, they, they sort of rotate every year. You have north, south, east, west every four years. Yeah. So uh, those those uh, those numbers that you pitched there are those all Russian troops, or does that include an international aspect as well? Well, yeah. Uh, the, probably the, the reason we're having this podcast is for the first time, um, members of the People's Liberation Army, uh, three thousand six hundred troops uh, from China are participating. Uh, this is largely due to the fact that uh, Moscow is quite keen to make an accommodation to Beijing in terms of holding these uh, exercises without uh, destabilizing relations between the two. So inviting Chinese troops along is, is a way in which Russia feels that it's sort of um, avoiding, avoiding doing that. I think from Moscow's perspective, that's one consideration, but certainly the kind of much publicized scale of them is, is largely driven by, I think, a domestic concern to uh, perhaps justify increased military spending over the past decade, Putin has really made quite one of the central pillars of his domestic policies. And that comes at a time when this very spending is being questioned, given the ongoing sort of dissent and dispute over increases to the proposed increases to the retirement age, which would see women retire at 60 up from 55 and, and men at 65 up from 60, which is the first time uh, any such increases have been proposed um, since the pensions were introduced in Russia in the 1930s. And they proved deeply unpopular and, and really kind of brought into focus the government's budgetary policies and the way it's distributing money and the amount of money it's obviously spending on the military. And do the, so from a domestic point of view for Russia, do the exercises tie into a sense of Russian, Russian nationalism or are they intended to do that? Or are they being held up as a, you know, in contrast to these uh, economic controversies? I think the answer lies somewhere in between the two. It's certainly the way it's presented on, t- on television is what is very glossy and effective and uh, shows the strength of the Russian state, the Russian army. The fact that Beijing is involved, I think it further allows them to present Russia as a global actor, uh, you know, working alongside this powerhouse, this superpower, against America. I think that's the crucial thing. You know, it, it's, it's pitching Russia and China against the US. And then certainly, I think, that you know, that very much evolves itself down into the idea of 
justifying the spending on this to keep the, keep the military in, in, in place there. Yeah, so Amy, perhaps we'll bring you in here. Um, so from the Chinese point of view, what, what does this mean for uh, Russian-Chinese relations? I think it's it's definitely a clear sign of a strengthening strategic partnership between between Russia and China. The exercises themselves highlight the military aspect of this, and I think, as as Ed's been saying, it's it's quite clearly a strategic message to the West that Russia and China stand together militarily. And then we've also got at the same time the Eastern Economic Forum taking place in Vladivostok this week. President Xi is attended for the first time. And there's quite a significant general Chinese presence at the forum. And both presidents have been meeting on the sidelines. And there's been lots of amicable chat about the prospects for future sort of deeper economic relations. So things are definitely looking cooperative between China and Russia at the moment. And, and what does China, what, what's China seeking to gain from closer relations with Russia? Well, I think it's largely driven by expedience. I think there's sort of both China and Russia are adopting a bit of a my enemy's enemy is my friend approach, given that they're both involved in sort of deepening fallouts with Western powers at the moment. China is, is involved not only in the escalating trade war with the US, but there were recently kind of raised tensions in the South China Sea with a UK warship. And we've also seen strained relations with Australia over a recent government decision there to ban the Chinese telecoms giant Huawei from distributing 5G networks. So in this context, China is, is seeking partners where it can. And in addition to that, I guess there's also a more tangible economic benefit angle. China's looking to Russia to shore up food security with agricultural supplies. We've already seen uh, record numbers of soybeans being imported in recent months. And of course, uh, energy security as well. Okay, and uh, Ed, from Russia's side, what, what's Russia seeking to gain by, by closer relationship with, uh, with China? I think it's not too dissimilar from what, what Beijing is, is looking for, but perhaps on, from a sort of different perspective. Uh, Russia's economy is by nowhere near as strong uh, fundamentally as, as China's. Since 2014, after uh, Russia's relationship with the West deteriorated significantly after the uh, annexation of Crimea and invasion of eastern Ukraine, Moscow very quickly sought to, to pivot towards China as a trading partner and has done so relatively successfully by 2020. China will become Russia's largest trading partner usurping the European Union, which is crucial. December 2019 will be the launch or the, the completion date of the power of Siberia pipeline, which will transport about 55 billion cubic meters of gas eastwards, which is the first time such a pipeline has been built. Previously, all of Russia's pipelines went west towards the European markets. So Moscow really clearly sees that you know, these tensions with the West are, are set in now, they're largely entrenched, and it's, unli- it's a signal that Moscow feels that that relationship with the West is, is, is unlikely to change significantly at the moment, and it makes sense to diversify and, and try and improve relations with China for its own economic advantage. Mm. Let me ask you both this. Is this, is this an alliance? Is this, a strong, is this the beginning of a, a really strong alliance that's going to stand the test of time, or is this more of a pragmatic uh, marriage of convenience? In short, no. It's, it's, I wouldn't call it a, a friendship or an alliance. I think these terms, as you say, both imply something a bit more binding, non-transactional goodwill, uh, which I, I don't think is what we're seeing here. It's, it's a marriage of convenience, as you say. It's, it's driven by mutual gain and expediency and the kind of current geopolitical 
divisions between both China and Russia and the Western powers. So are there, are there aspects that may hinder the relationship or, or may cause fractures? And if so, what, what do we think they are? I mean, I think the very nature of the relationship is part of the answer to that question in the sense that it isn't, they're not, they're ideologically aligned or have, in a sense, a shared identity of a kind of loose authoritarianism, of rejection of Western values. And that in itself isn't necessarily very strong. Returning back to the sort of economic question to, to understand this, you know, China, China and Russia signed an energy deal in 2014. They'd been negotiating that for 10 years. And they only signed it after that in 2014 because of the deterioration of Russia's relationship with the West. Uh, so that's a very kind of indicative of, of, of what the relationship is built on. It's ba- built upon a, ne- a need and necessity of both to unite temporarily or for however long that may be. It remains to be seen. But it's certainly more of an opportunistic sort of um, self mutually beneficial relationship. I don't think that either side would like to consider themselves the, the junior partner. Uh, Russia certainly, you know, obviously has, doesn't have the, the military capability, sorry, the economic capability of China, and as to how long they can maintain that facade of being uh, sort of equal in, in the terms of their power and within that relationship, it remains to be seen. And uh, what about the, you know, the rest of the broader region? So I'm thinking particularly of Central Asia. What does the relationship, at least from a military point of view, mean to uh, Central Asian countries, how will they look at this? And, you know, what's the, what's the power dynamic between China and Russia in terms of Central Asia? I mean, that's a very central region. Uh, you know, the, the Central Asian com- countries are, you know, largely, sort of the, the Russia and China's role is largely split with, uh, with Russia being the uh, military guarantor and China being the economic guarantor. Um, Beijing has invested large amounts of capital into uh, infrastructure associated with its One Belt, One Road policies. Well, Moscow hasn't been able to completely sell a lot of those countries uh, in Central Asia on the Eurasian Economic Union, whilst you know, a few are members. The, the, the bloc really pales in comparison to what economic benefits China can offer. So I think that both, both countries are, are want to see that region stable and strong rather than in, you know, destabilized and on their, on their borders, but given also the sort of growing and shifting nature of um, you know, jihadist activity in Central Asia as well. Neither of those two countries want, neither Russia nor China, want to deal with that problem. So they're quite keen to sort of preserve that status quo. However, should there be greater Chinese investment, should these countries, uh, principally you know, Kyrgyzstan or Uzbekistan, shift more towards the Chinese, that would undoubtedly raise, raise tensions between the two. Mm. So we mentioned the Belt and Road Initiative there. Amy, do you think that the Belt and Road Initiative is favourable towards Russia? Is that going to be another area where we see uh, this economic co- cooperation that we've mentioned grow, or is it uh, in contention to, uh, to Russian economic strategic plans? Yeah, I think, to be honest, following on from, from what Ed said about the kind of strategic arena that is Eurasia and also Eastern Europe, uh, it does represent a, a point of potential conflict that could be a trigger for a souring of relations between between Moscow and Beijing. They both have economic and, and military interests in the region, and should these come into conflict, there is potential for, for this to cause a fallout. I think we've seen a few examples recently of, of China potentially encroaching into Russia's traditional sphere of influence. Uh, there, there are arms sales to, to Minsk, to Belarus, so this could definitely be a point of friction down the line. Okay, so um, just to sum up then, 
what do we think are the key predictions going forward? What do we think is going to happen next? And what are the key implications to business? I think for the time being, at least, the geopolitical dynamics are such that we are likely to see continuation of relatively warm relations and uh, strengthening strategic partnership between China and Russia. And this is likely to specifically manifest in, as we've said, stronger economic relations, greater investment, Chinese capital going into Russia's Far Eastern regions and the Arctic, more trade, more high-level meetings, friendly rhetoric. Uh, a continuation in China and Russia voting and vetoing together on the UN Security Council, all these type of things. I think, yeah, all of those points are, are, are absolutely spot on. But I think in a what sort of wider context, it means that both countries are going to be increasingly assertive, that they reinforce each other's actions in their, in their values, you know, from, from Ukraine and, and um, Syria for Russia to the South China Sea for China. These and Taiwan, obviously, these are the sort of areas where their kind of growing relationship or evolving strategic partnership, call it what you will, will essentially embolden them to act more and more assertively, contrary to the idea, you know, against the idea of the US, US hegemony. The interesting point will be what will happen when the, both sides feel that the US is no longer the global hegemon. How, how does their relationship then evolve? Who, who comes out on top? That, that's the potential you know, br- br- fork in the road for uh, for the China, for Chinese-Russian relations. Great. Ed, Amy, thank you very much for all of your insight there as ever, and we look forward to hearing from you both soon. Thank you for listening, and we hope you have found this podcast useful. If you would like to learn more about our services, or if you have any questions or feedback, please get in touch at info at sibyline.co.uk. 